0: Welcome back to another week on the Brainwaves Podcast, I'm Jim Siegler. It's been a while since we've covered a topic in pediatric neurology, but this one seemed appropriate for a large audience given the recent opioid epidemic, and all the steps that are taken by local and national authorities in attempt to address this outbreak of narcotic dependence. Over the next 15 minutes, we'll review the causes, the clinical manifestations, and the expert recommendations on the management of the neonatal abstinence syndrome, the unfortunate disease that's suffered by children who are born to mothers who use narcotics during pregnancy. Neonatal abstinence syndrome, or NAS, refers to the postnatal syndrome that's experienced by newborns whose mothers were using opioids while pregnant. But before we even get into these details, let's set the stage. How did opiate use among pregnant women become so common? Our story begins in ancient Mesopotamia, over 5,000 years ago, when recreational and medicinal opium use was initially documented. But opium use never surfaced as a serious problem until it achieved international infamy in the late 19th century. Morphine entered the medical market as a pain reliever in 1817, and heroin was later synthesized in 1874. Women enjoyed the effects of these opiate products just as men did, However, it was not thought to affect newborn infants because people really didn't believe that women could get pregnant on these drugs. The belief at the time was that women who used heroin and related substances were sterile. Or if they weren't sterile, they had limited sexual desire. This could not have been more wrong. And so it was that the first case of the neonatal abstinence syndrome was reported in 1875 just one year after heroin was first synthesized. Shortly thereafter, the medical community witnessed a flurry of similar publications referring to, quote, Congenital morphinism. Because there was no known treatment at the time, many of these infants died from complications of withdrawal. But the 1900s were just around the corner, and by that time, physicians tried to trial these infants on morphine. Before long, around the mid-20th century, opiate replacement therapy became a more common practice in newborns who were suffering from withdrawal. But that doesn't mean we were making progress in the field of neonatal abstinence. Believe me when I say that NAS is now a global problem, and it's not getting any better. In 2012, over 20,000 infants were diagnosed with this disorder, about 3 for every 1,000 newborns. This number is 500% greater than it was only a decade prior, despite an increase in the world's population by only 20%. But why have these numbers grown so rapidly? A couple of reasons. The simplest answer is that there are simply more opioid-based prescriptions that are going around, especially among pregnant women. But why this is happening is less clear. Risk factors for maternal opiate use are as you might expect. Mothers who are unmarried, who are unemployed, they're less educated, and they're less insured. And some have argued that this is more a reflection on the unplanned nature of these pregnancies among women who fit this demographic. Taking it another step further, some epidemiologists have observed that these women have riskier lifestyles. They're more likely to have multiple medical, nutritional, or mental health problems compared to the non-opiate users. With the rise in opiate abuse, there has been a commensurate rise in the number of women seeking help for opiate addiction. Women who are pregnant are among these drug users, and as a result, a growing number of American babies go through drug withdrawal from the moment they are born. In tonight's Methadone, as a safer substitute for injectable heroin, is probably the most common pharmacologic treatment for managing opiate addiction, and it certainly has led to less risky lifestyles for some patients. But methadone itself is not without risk. And like other forms of opiate products, methadone can also lead to NAS. It seems like a paradox. Most doctors agree that the best way to treat opioid addiction is with other opioids. How can that be? The answer tells us a lot. And epidemiologic studies have proven that methadone's use has contributed, at least in part, to a rise in the worldwide incidence of NAS. Other reasons may account for a massive increase in neonatal abstinence syndrome. Illegally obtained opiates, like heroin, and lately, the fentanyl and carfentanyl laced drugs are increasingly popular among recreational users. When we describe this as a superhuman drug, um, it's not to attract people to it. Uh, it's because it's literally what it is, where you know micrograms of a dosage of these opioids can kill and have killed. And I'm not just talking about the inner-city, low-income users which comprised the majority of users when I was a kid. Now it seems that these substances were making their way into the hands of nearly every socioeconomic group. Some reasons for the rise in the incidence of NAS are less clear. And some of these were implemented as a means to control or to curb the opioid epidemic. Needle exchange programs, for example, while potentially helpful in preventing communicable diseases, these programs have not been shown to be effective in some studies. In one Seattle-based cohort of over 600 IV drug users who were followed for two years, there was no protective effect of syringe exchange. That being said, I will say that the general consensus is that these programs are effective. According to one comprehensive review, 6 out of 10 studies looking at HIV seroconversion found that syringe exchange prevented transmission of HIV. But you gotta wonder that it may increase the availability of heroin products. Then there's the question of the government-sponsored housing programs, or shelters, where users can go to inject. Such programs, like the one that was recently put together in Philly, where I live, also permit opioid users to gather together in a safe place to enjoy recreational drugs safely, without a fear of persecution. They've called it Housing First. The big opportunity to do something around the homeless is to interrupt the cycle of incarceration, Release psychiatric emergency room, homelessness, and back to jail. And while it's still in its experimental phase among opioid users, it's been shown to be highly cost-effective among alcoholics, reducing the total cost of government services by over 50% at six months. However, these measures remain unclear about how successful they could be in the long term, especially among opioid users where the risk of relapse may be greater. And back to the topic at hand, no study to date has seen any reduction in the proportion of children who are born with NAS because of these programs. Government-sanctioned initiatives like needle exchange and housing programs may have been conceived with good intentions, and are definitely a benefit in preventing the spread of infectious disease and potentially cutting costs in healthcare. But when it comes to the opioid crisis, they're like putting a band-aid on an amputated leg. They're not much good unless we use them to supplement more comprehensive reform in mental health care and preventive medicine. But we're not going to diverge into how this can be done, at least not in today's episode of Brainwaves. I'm not an expert in healthcare policy, and I don't pretend to be. Back to the topic of NAS. Regardless of whether the opiate is prescribed or purchased on the street, regardless of whether it's swallowed or it's injected or snorted, the fetus is exposed to these compounds, and they will develop a tolerance after repeat use. After birth, this tolerance will become clear as they exhibit characteristic withdrawal symptoms, and these symptoms will be observed in 55-94% to 94% of children who are born to mothers on opiates of any kind. The manifestations of neonatal abstinence syndrome are protean, and these symptoms span across a range of severity and complexity. It's no wonder that they're often missed. Symptoms often begin with irritability, which can be difficult to pin down in a newborn, but excess irritability and inconsolability will lead to an excess high-pitched crying, difficulty sleeping, tremors, diarrhea, and rarely even seizures in 2-11% of cases. Some symptoms could also mimic seizures, like the myoclonic jerks and the hypertonia that's more frequently observed in methadone withdrawal. Autonomic involvement is common, and typically it goes with the irritability, but sometimes the tachycardia and low-grade fevers can mimic sepsis. While these symptoms are typically short-lived, the poor feeding, the poor sleep quality, and the diarrhea can create entirely new problems for the newborn, leading to dehydration and poor weight gain. To make matters more confusing, many newborns will also develop hyperphagia, likely as a result of the irritability and the lack of appropriate sleep, and because of the excess energy expenditure during the withdrawal, and for a variety of other reasons risk factors associated with more severe neonatal withdrawal include birth at term, and if they have a good birth weight, if there's polysubstance abuse by the mother, and there are some gene mutations that have also been implicated. As far as the duration of symptoms go, it really depends on the type of the opioid the mother was using, how much they were using, and if there were any other substances that were involved. And because other substances could be involved, there's more to be concerned than with the opioid withdrawal alone. Polysubstance abuse, or the abuse of more than one class of substances, is common, and according to data from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health from 2005 to 2014, the most common secondary substance among opioid users is cigarettes, which are smoked in over half of pregnant women taking opioids. This is followed by binge drinking, which we see in 50% of opioid-using mothers-to-be, and marijuana in a third of expectant mothers. But the withdrawal syndromes are not so clear for some of these other substances, including cocaine. And of course, besides the fact that they are at risk of polysubstance abuse, expectant mothers illicitly using opioids are at a higher risk of having acquired certain infectious diseases like HIV and hepatitis B and C. In addition to routine screening, these women should be counseled on the safety of repeat use of injectable opiate products. When it comes to management, like all things neurology, there's not a single approach or a singular treatment. As they say, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Avoiding opiates, whenever possible, is the best way to prevent the development of NAS. But if this option isn't on the table, methadone has been proven safe in mothers. At least it's safer than heroin injections. Again, like other opiates, methadone is associated with a higher risk of NAS, so this must be considered when treating pregnant women or women with the potential of becoming pregnant. Buprenorphine, a partial mu opioid agonist and a complete kappa opioid antagonist has been in the news a little bit lately, a new weapon in our armamentarium to fight drug addiction. The risk for relapse is reduced because you're not going And it may have an equal if not better safety profile among newborns of mothers who take this product. According to a recent randomized double-blind double-dummy trial of flexible dosing in 175 pregnant women, the children who were born to mothers randomized to buprenorphine had a lower morphine requirement and a shorter hospital stay than the children who were born to mothers on methadone. That being said, the children who were born to the mothers on buprenorphine were just as likely to develop NAS as the kids in the other group, and the severity of symptoms was similar between the groups so there may only be a benefit in the cost of management and the complications of hospitalization, but not in the severity of their disease. After the child's born, symptoms manifest quickly, and experts have recommended that these patients be managed swiftly and aggressively. Many providers stick to this Finnegan scoring system when categorizing disease severity and deciding on a management strategy. 21 of the signs of withdrawal are scored using this tool, with higher scores representing more severe symptoms. Pharmacologic management is escalated from supportive measures to opiates when simple measures fail, as in the case if a patient's symptoms become more severe, if they were to have seizures, or if the withdrawal leads to serious vomiting or diarrhea that can cause dehydration. When it comes to opiate selection, morphine is the drug of choice, according to experts, and it has known efficacy in managing the symptoms of withdrawal. It improves feeding, and it can even reduce the risk of seizures. But dosing should be minimized whenever possible, because larger doses have been associated with longer hospital stays for a newborn. Some have advocated for the use of methadone, especially in the United States. But compared to morphine, it's dosed less frequently, typically twice a day compared to the Q3 or 4-hour dosing intervals for morphine. And because of its longer half-life, it's more challenging to titrate than morphine. And finally, you wouldn't want to use opioid antagonists like naloxone in cases of NAS because they're known to precipitate seizures. Interestingly, in opioid-addicted mothers, the American Academy of Pediatrics has affirmed that breastfeeding is safe. Minimal amounts of residual opiate in methadone and other opioid products can enter the breast milk, but mothers should be advised that, especially among mothers who are taking oxycodone or hydrocodone, that some opiate may get into the breast milk and cause sedation of the infant if it's ingested. For this reason, and for other obvious reasons, opioids should be avoided by nursing mothers whenever possible. The only related circumstances when breastfeeding should be contraindicated would be if the mother were abusing multiple substances, if they are using illicit opioid products, or if the mother has HIV. Moving lastly onto prognosis, NAS is rarely fatal, but that does not mean it's a benign condition. Newborns with this disorder often develop multi-organ dysfunction, and they can have prolonged hospital stays. Not to mention, these children frequently may ultimately be brought to an unsafe environment at home. Granted, a large number of newborns with NAS are born to mothers who may not have intentionally abused opiate products, or they may be on a methadone maintenance program for a prior addiction. But even so, it does raise a concern. And it may not be a bad idea to involve a multidisciplinary care team to discuss the safest and the healthiest way to manage these children, especially in the long term, or even to determine what the most suitable discharge disposition may be for the patient. Over years and decades, these children may require neurobehavioral follow-up, and they may need other medical appointments. They're at a greater risk of developing ADHD, having cognitive impairment, poor school behaviors, poor weight gain and they could fail to thrive. It goes without saying that these children and their families often require extensive psychosocial support in order to prevent maternal relapse, or at least to continue encouraging safe practices and abstinence from substance abuse. Even in fully rehabilitated families, care remains complex and challenging. Multidisciplinary intervention is often required in order to achieve the best possible outcome for newborns who suffer from NAS. That wraps it up for Brainwaves this week. Thank you all for listening to our show. I hope you were able to take away something from this episode. And if you like what you heard, please send us your feedback at bweditorialboard at gmail.com or rate us on iTunes. We can always use a few more stars. As usual, this podcast is for medical education and entertainment purposes only. We are not providing medical advice. So, what I was saying in this episode should not be misconstrued as recommendations for clinical management. If your baby is irritable, that does not mean giving him opiates. I'm simply summarizing these others' expert opinions, nothing more. This week's episode was produced by myself, Jim Siegler. Music was courtesy of Chris Zabriskie, Jason Shaw, and Little Glass Men. For more information, please check out our blog at brainwaves.me or follow us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio or Facebook.com slash Brainwaves Podcast. Thanks again for listening, I'll talk to you next week.